It's just not a big deal to me. Uh, it never has been. And uh, But if it is for you, I hope you enjoy your St. Patty's Day. Anyway, we're not going to be talking about St. Patrick's Day today, Shamrock's, uh, Shamrock Shakes, or, or, or the Irish, or anything like that. We're going to be talking about something really important to all of us, food. I have John Moody coming back on to talk about the rogue food movement. This is basically the movement to say, well, there's all this regulation that says what we're not allowed to do, as far as the government's concerned. And there's all these things we want to do as small-scale producers, as people that want to buy local, etc., that's in conflict with that. And changing the system, as you're going to hear today, is almost impossible. So how do we work the system? How do we circumvent their bullshit? How do we assert our basic right that if I want to buy the food that my neighbor's growing, I have every right to do so? How do we do that? Well, we do that through, in some instances, flat-out going rogue. There's a variety of ways that you can operate in the middle of all this crap and, to be blunt, get away with it. I mean, literally, you know, like even when they come after you, they can't really do anything. Uh, our special guest today has had them come after him. He's had them come directly. He's had them raid his farm, and he's still there, and he's still doing what he does. Why? Because there are ways to deal with the incompetence of government. In fact, one thing we have going for us with government is it's so big and it's so inefficient that it's inherently incompetent. We say it all the time, right? The government's incompetent. Then we're like, well, they won't let us. Well, how do you let somebody incompetent prevent you from doing what you want to do? It, it, it comes in a lot of ways from lazy thinking. We're going to be talking about what I call anti-status jujitsu today. How do we use their own system against them? John has gotten really great at that. He put together a movement called the Rogue Food, Food Movement that is cornerstone by something called the Rogue Food Conference. He did his first one ever last year. We're going to talk about that, how that went. And this year they're doing two Rogue Food Conferences, and this is going to become a thing that continues to grow and gets bigger and bigger and bigger because we need it to. We have a real problem in our world today with food supply. I think that what's happened over the last year should have shown us that. I'll leave that till we get John on, though, because, well, um, John's a good dude, and we had a great conversation. It's kind of a long interview today, and we dig all into the things that are wrong, along with providing an abundance of solutions. With that, before we bring John on, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor today, number one today, is Western Botanicals. Um, we have a country, in my opinion, where when they talk about health care and the medical industry, they should talk about sick care, right? That's And, it, and it's a sickness and illness industry. The, the profit is predicated on people being sick and ill, and profit is made by treating people their entire lives, cradle to grave, instead of keeping people healthy. One way that you can treat yourself and stay healthy is using nature's herbs. Western Botanicals is my source for everything herbal. If you give them a shot, I think you'll find out that you want them to be your solution, too. Check them out today at westernbotanicals.com. Next up today, bulk ammo. Um, 
If you have a gun and you have no ammo for it, what you have is a really expensive club. I mean, it's basically, it can't do what it's supposed to do without ammo. So we need to lay ammo up. And you'll notice that whenever there's talk about gun restrictions and all, the first thing to dry up isn't guns. It's not even magazines. It's ammunition. Because ammunition is the part that once it's expended, unless you have the components and the knowledge to reload, it's gone. It's gone. Unlike, unlike the high-capacity magazines that the, the, the lady from Colorado thought, well, once they shoot them, they'll be gone. So we don't need to worry about the ones that already exist. Yeah, they're that stupid. You need to understand that this is an important part of your prepping. You need to lay up enough ammo to have more than you need. That's what, that's what a prep is, having more than you need now so you have as much as you need tomorrow. A great place to get your ammo is BulkAmmo.com, a long-term sponsor, been with us like eight years now. Check them out today. Again, you know where to find them, BulkAmmo.com, and they do a discount for members of the MSB. With that, let's go ahead and, uh, before I get John on, let's, let's start out with a quote of the day. This is a quote of the day that I've done before, but I, I couldn't come up with a better quote for what John and I are about to talk about today. It's from Bill Mollison. He said, we're only truly secure when we can look out of our kitchen window and see our food growing and our friends working nearby. Bill understood that security comes from being able to feed oneself and having people that you can work with. That's what this quote says. It's very simple. It doesn't require any great you know, philosophical understanding. That's what I loved about Bill. As deep and philosophical as he was, the things he said kind of just hit you straight between the eyes, and he meant what he said. You would think this is not really much to ask for, honestly. You would think the reason we don't have it is simply because people don't do it. But there's a litany of things in the way of having our food growing out of our window and our friends working nearby. But there are ways around that. That's what the Rogue Food Movement is all about. And with that, let's go ahead and introduce our special guest. Welcome back to the Survival Podcast, John Moody. With that, hey, John, man, how you doing today? Good. Just got inside from repairing our chicken coop. I've been doing a lot of repairing. We had a little, a little freeze down here. I don't know if you heard anything about it. <laughs> it was kind of a big deal. <laughs> yeah, you know, it was only all over the news, yeah. all over social media, the Texas apocalypse. Yeah, we were, according to the media, we were all dying. I think we were just all pissed off and angry. That's about all it really was. Maybe we need to call it the Texas Popsicleus. <laughs> yeah, the Texas Popsicleus. That's kind of what it was. It was like, it, you know what, dude? I, we'll get on to the main subject here in a second, but... We actually didn't have a, a bad winter this year. We had like a week of winter, and that was it. it, it was, <laughs> everything's green is, is all hell now, except um, all the live oaks. They're, they're evergreens, and they're nevergreens now. They uh, they, they all oh, got they froze off. Yeah, oh, yes. man. so I don't know how many we're going to lose. Anyway, um, let's dig into this. For folks that have not heard from you before and don't know who you are, Who is John Moody? Give us like the elevator speech and how you got into doing what you do today. Oh, man. So we're like homesteader, prepper type farmers in Kentucky. Um, we started this journey about 16 years ago when I started to have health problems. Uh, when we lived up in the city, moved out onto land in about 2010 um, and have really just been involved with food and farming and giving the government grief. Um, ever since. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you've been a huge, huge uh, impact in, in the food freedom movement. Um, on that note, kind of 
What did what do you feel anyway that we learned or maybe we should have learned last year about how the government sees its regulations of food and farming? Oh goodness. You know, so like last year was the train wreck that me and others have been warning would eventually happen for 15, 20, 25 years. You know, this centralized growing, centralized processing, centralized handling system, you know, yeah, it makes, you know, something resembling food that gets served out of a clown head cheap and convenient, but it's completely fragile and, and, you know, just completely unable to cope with any type of actual shock to the system. And, And, you know, so We've known this forever, even the government's own reports on the U.S. food system point out that, like, this this concentration and centralization is a ticking time bomb under the right circumstances. Um, you know, like, one thing I've been telling people, you're like, we lost almost half of the U.S. meat supply for a few months just because of some plants being shut down. You, you want to talk about, like, national security risk? <laughs> imagine if the plants weren't just shut down because a few people got sick. But imagine the plants were bombed or other, like, you know, you can bring America to heal just by taking out two dozen meat processing plants. You, you'd literally knock out half of the butchering capacity of the country. You know, merely by taking out tiny, minuscule infrastructure because everything goes through it. So, you know, so it's just nuts to me that, you know, anyone who still doesn't realize that our food and farming system is always a disaster just waiting to happen. Well, I mean, we're back to the old thing that we've been talking about forever here at TSPC, right? Like centralization is what they've done with everything to control people, but all the solutions then are in decentralization. Like what you just safety. Yeah. We've described, what you just described was how fragile our food system is, right? Like, and it is fragile specifically because it is centralized. So if you had thousands upon thousands of small slaughterhouses and processing facilities throughout the United States working regionally, what you just said could never happen. Like you bomb what three of them? So what? I don't care. But honestly, they could if they and it could be a, a genuine military strike, or it could be a guy with a truck full of ammonium nitrate, and you could take out one tomorrow morning. Oh yeah, or or it could be you know like the growing you know BLM Antifa and others if they ever got their head you know on straight instead of burning down Portland, you know you really want to make a statement. All you have to do is target the right concentrated infrastructure. You know, but what's what's even crazier though is the government's response to this. Um, I'm friends with Congressman Thomas Massey, and in the midst of you know, they euthanized off last year probably 30 or 40 million animals. Yeah, is my guess. Yeah. Um, and, and so, I mean, Massey, I remember seeing the videos of like a wall of pigs being pushed into a hole by a freaking bulldozer oh, yeah. while, while just, people couldn't get a pork chop. Oh yeah. Yeah. You're, you're, you know, you're talking, 
you know, you know, we could get into some of why the big meat companies absolutely loved it. It was one of the greatest things to ever happen to them. Uh, but Massey went to the USDA to, you know, cause, cause they have the power to suspend or alter all sorts of regulations, especially sure. during an emergency. And when I talked with Massey after he talked with the USDA, he basically said that the person at the USDA made it clear that they would rather people starve and animals be euthanized than make any meaningful changes to the meat inspection system. Does, it, it, it seems like we're way past time for action, right? I mean, the, <laughs> the, you, you get to a point where you're like, okay, well, if that's – and I think that maybe people need to start getting their head around this. Like there are certain things that when your government definitively states things are going to be this way, that we have no choice, but I guess you know, it fits your, your world pretty well to go rogue and say, well, we're not, yeah. we're not playing by these rules anymore. Because you know what I just said about you know, hundreds or thousands of independent processing facilities – they exist. They don't exist in the numbers they did in the 50s, but they're there. But they can't do the job that we need them to do. They're doing, you know, like they'll process my birds for me, but they can't process my birds for my customers because somehow it all, all of a sudden becomes dangerous. And you start to realize <laughs> that, like, like it's, it's totally safe. I can take them 25 chickens. They process them. I pick them up. I eat them. Everything's good. They got inspected by a state inspector. It's all wonderful. But if I grow 25 chickens, take them down there and sell five to each of my neighbors, now they're a danger. And when, when you start to think about it that way, you realize, like, none of this has a effing thing to do with safety. None. It has nothing to do with our safety. I'll even give them the benefit of the doubt that maybe it started there, but that, 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 that horse is so far out of the barn, it turned into a unicorn and left. <laughs> well, and even worse, though, for the small processors, uh, you know, Joel Salatin years ago was asked to go speak at some kind of meat hearing mm -hmm. at the Capitol. And he was later in the day. And so, you know, like people from FISIS and the USDA and the alphabet soup of stupidity all got to speak first. Yeah. And Joel was telling me how when they got up to speak. And they, you know, they were patting themselves on the back for the amazing job they do. Yeah. One of the main things they emphasized as one of their greatest accomplishments of the last decade was how many less facilities were needed to be inspected because they had driven them out of the market. Oh, I see. So you became more efficient by having less work to do. So, and, and, and you might say like, oh, John, like, you, you know, there's a butcher shop just south of us called Boone's. Yeah. It has been around, I think, since the 40s, maybe. It, you know, it, it's, it's been a mainstay in Kentucky for decades. It's a USDA inspected uh, butchering facility. It, in the midst of the pandemic, the USDA tried to shut them down permanently. Yeah, and, and they're only one of like five or six USDA facilities in the state. One of the other ones who I'm friends with, they had two years, I think, of absolute hell dealing with their USDA inspector while Tyson actually kills people with tainted meat. 
and the inspectors say to Tyson, can you try and not do that next time? <laughs> no, that's literally what happened. You could look at the court documents. Tyson released meat that, like, killed people. And when the USDA cracked down on them, if you get past all of the florid government speak, it was basically like, can you try harder not to kill people with your products? No fine, no anything. No, obviously they're going to pay civil, you know, civil sure. stuff and whatnot. Sure. Uh, you know, so the disparity in how the government treats large mega corporations versus your local mom and pop butcher shop is it, it, it's unfathomable unless you've actually seen it in action or, or talked with some of the people who run these places and, and really heard just like the, you know, uh, Pete Kennedy, who uh, might still work with farm to consumer. He and I were talking a year or so ago in an ex USDA physis inspector, I guess had reached out to Pete. Um, and he told Pete straight up that it was, USDA FISA's policy to make life hard for small shops in order to get them closed. Not like on the book written policy, but it was understood that that is like the unofficial policy and goal of FISA's. Hmm. Like I said, we're just getting to a point where I feel like we need to just completely take things into our own hands. And as bad as this all is, you're more plugged into what they're doing than I am. What is the direction that we're going in? So, like, we're already, I mean, we all agree with this sucks. But it, well, dude, it you, is getting heard, worse, right? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you heard, like, Biden wants to institute, like, the Office of Supply Management or something. Like, basically where... They want to have complete control over the flow of goods in the economy anytime they declare emergency. And next time your niece has sniffles, you can bet your bottom dollar they're going to declare an emergency. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I mean, like the old, you know, the old adage, you give a, you know, you give them an inch, they'll take a foot. I mean, Shit. And people gave them a couple inches and they're taking, you know, they're miles. just going to, oh yeah, it's. <laughs> It's endless at this point, especially in certain states like Kentucky and Michigan and some of these other states with total whackball governors. I really think the government looked at this and said, let's let's see how much control we can can exert. And then oh, yeah. when they did it, I think even the government was like, holy shit, I didn't know we were this good at what we've done to people. Well, like, the, like, I think they, they just were like even shocked, like, oh, my God, we it, it, it's become almost like a. Uh, like a game of Simon Says in, in, like, second grade when all the stupid kids have been gotten out and, and everybody's following it along and not getting knocked out. And the teacher starts, like, well, let's just see how stupid I can make them behave. Like, since they all, <laughs> since they all know the difference between, you know, tie, you know, touch your shoe and Simon Says touch your shoe, let's just come up with some things like, you know, stick your thumb in your butt crack and, and see if they'll do it. Because that's, that's what this feels like at this point. Oh, yeah. Well, and, you know, it's the ultimate triumph of public education and, you know, and, and modern college. Yeah. Like where, where literally people are so educated that you can get them to do Simon says, take anal COVID swabs and wear 14 masks 
and hide in their house and think that's going to keep them safe and promote their health. It's, you know, like, I agree. I'm in your boat. We're just like, I knew America was in great trouble. I knew I was surrounded by drones, an insane number of idiots. (laughs) Just like, you know, the level of idiocy was already great. But even I have a hard time fathoming and swallowing what I saw over the past year. And continue to see. Oh, yeah. I mean, what you continue to see, like, they've lifted all restrictions in Texas. So my wife and I went out to a restaurant last night. Um, we walk in. They have the mask sign up. We just don't wear masks. They don't say nothing. Okay, fine. We, we, they're going to seat us, and, like, every other table has a red X on it. <laughs> right? And I'm like, what are you guys doing? Like, this has been over down here for two weeks. Oh, we're still social distancing. I said, why? She said, I don't know. Yeah. And I, my own, my wife and I sat. We were talking about and the only legitimate reason that I came up with it could be really what's going on with a place like that. They had to like like so many of their staff go yeah. uh, under these restrictions. It it may be that some restaurants just can't get enough servers to fully reopen. I mean, I don't know, but uh, like people still willingly complying with the thing they don't even have to do anymore to where like they seem to have pride in their mask. You know, they're going to run around. They're they're driving around in their cars. They're walking through the (laughs) woods. You know, they're a a thousand miles from anybody. They're wearing a mask. They they look like idiots. And I know that's really not a food topic, but what it is is it hits on the compliance that people have accepted. Because I I feel like we have fully domesticated the human species at this point. And that's that's the real problem. And it means that, like, if you're not going to, like, push back at all against this nonsense – you're not going to push back against somebody taking over control of your food system because most people don't even know where their food comes from anyway. Cloud heads. Food comes cloud from cloud heads. <laughs> so, oh, good Lord. Or Well, you know, and I mean, there, there, there are truly Americans who believe chocolate milk comes from brown cows. I, I wish yeah. I could tell you that that's not true, but it's, it's true. And they're not all kids. Oh, no. Not at all. Well, you know, I, I might have told this story previously on the show, but, you know, I run a local food buying club out of Louisville. And one of our members years ago was at lunch with a coworker, And she was having some kind of, you know, she was having an egg from our buying club, which comes from a real farmer. And her coworker looked over at this egg. And the coworker is like, what is wrong with that egg? You know, because the egg, instead of being this pale, pallid, deathly color, is this bright, deep, you know, orange from all the nutrients and stuff it contains. And this lady says to her coworker, she goes, you know, my eggs come from a local buying club that works with local small farmers who raises their chickens on. And she could see her coworker is getting like vis- visibly upset Okay. And she's talking about where the food comes. And she goes, please just stop. She's like, she's like, my eggs don't come from chickens. My eggs come from Kroger. I, yeah, you just would. Uh, and Kroger has an egg factory that, you know, uses Star, well, Star Trek technology to replicate them. Well, and, and, you know, t- talking about the government side, just to tie off that thread so that listeners really can understand where things are going. If Bill Gates was able to get his way 
with masks and vaccines and other stuff. Yeah. You better be taking him seriously when he says governments should make it so their people cannot eat meat. Because, again, if he's able to get governments to force you to take a vaccine so you can travel, do you really think the governments aren't also going to hop on the anti-meat part? Well, because to, and to me, the reason they want to do this is that grains are quantifiable, taxable, controllable. And that's always been the reasoning behind modern agricultural systems, which are now you know, thousands and thousands of years old. The first currency was basically a grain bill. So I think that governments have a natural predisposition to want commodities to be controllable, storable, warehouseable, <laughs> easily transported, etc. And if it happens to also create a sick, compliant society, well, that's so much the better. If you think about animals, animals have a lot more requirement, and we can only centralize that so much. And when we do, we end up with CAFOs. And all of the, all of the issues, like vegetarians and vegans bring up about meat, most of the, I, I shouldn't say all, most of the issues, I completely agree with. You're just, that's, the solution is not not eating meat. It's not treating animals that way. And so the, the number one system I believe that we have to restore natural systems It's savanna mimic grazing systems. But what they want is fields plowed, quantifiable taxation, subsidy management. Like everything is easier for them in the world of corn and soy and wheat and rye and potato. Like that's, <laughs> that's, that's their world. It's quantifiable. You can make permits for it. You know, I mean, everything works better for a centralized system with grain. Everything works better in a decentralized system using animal-based systems, even if you're producing vegetation. And it, it, it doesn't I, – I think, like, Bill Gates is convenient for them in this. And I've also noticed something, John. I don't know if you have, but when I go out to, like, grocery stores and shit, I'm seeing tons of these meat alternative things being offered where they weren't before. Oh, yeah. And no one's buying them. <laughs> and no – I mean, I know I'm in Texas. You know, like, we, 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 we teeth our children on a cold steak bone – I understand that, but I mean, literally, nobody's buying it. And so it's going to take force to make it happen, or it's going to take the absence of options to make it happen because people don't want this shit. I'm sorry. They just don't. So, yeah, one of my favorite things is whenever there's a run on grocery stores. And no and one buys the will, vegan shit? Yeah, and people <laughs> will take pictures of the vegan aisle, and yeah. they're like, Even when there is nothing else to eat, people still do not want this garbage. There's one from Texas during Hurricane Harvey, and the entire produce section looks like it was robbed. There's literally nothing. There's not a leaf of lettuce left behind. And the whole cooler vegan section, there's like one package of soy dogs missing. <laughs> and it was somebody put up like, you know, you know, you know, Hurricane Harvey to Houston You know, um, eat vegan or die. And then it's like Houston takes a giant sip of whiskey, see you in hell. Like, it's just like, <laughs> no way, we're not doing this. And so I, but I do think it is the goal. And again, I'm back to, if you want to domesticate a species, put it on a domesticated diet, right? So I, I really feel like humans are a feral creature, right? We're communal, we, we get along, we work together, but so do lots of other creatures, We're not supposed to live in this kind of like 
top-down hierarchical society where we're obeying people we've never seen or met in our lives. I mean, you really think about that. We have obedience to people we don't even know. Oh, yeah. Like, It's madness. Can you imagine a tribal society and you tell them, hey, there's this guy, right? And we all elected him. You have to explain what that means. And he lives like 3,000 miles away. And he says, you're supposed to do this thing. You're probably getting put on a spit and roasted, right? Like, we're not doing this. And I think that's a natural, innate human response of noncompliance. And I think that I know we're supposed to be talking about food today, but this all interrelated. Because how do you domesticate a pig, John? You, if you find, like, a wild pig and it's got little piglets, right? You steal the piglets away from mom and dad, right? <laughs> you put them on a bottle, you put them in a cage, and you feed them at a set time until they become dependent on you. And within one generation, you have pigs that will follow you around like a dog. And when you need to shoot them, you just throw some, you know, wheat and beer in a bowl, and while they're drinking it, you pop them in the back of the head. And the other pig standing next to them is like, yeah, whatever. Like, and that's what they're trying to do to human beings. And food is the easiest method of controlling a population, no matter what that population is made of. Yep, control the food, and you control the people. And, and it, you know, last year really showed that. Like, yeah. you know, I've been a concealed carry person for, I guess, almost a decade. And last year was the first time I've ever been in a situation where I thought I was going to have to draw a firearm on somebody. Like... And, and I mean, that's just how insane last year was. Yeah. With, you know, especially height of the stupidity in March and April and stuff where people are just because people lose their minds when they don't have their food and their toilet paper and their other things because <laughs> they, they don't have they don't know where else to get these things. No. It, if, I, if I can't get it at Kroger or Costco. Where, where do you find food? Where, you know, where where do you find Doritos? <laughs> yeah, I was I was kind of amused when uh, Biden said to Trump during I think the debate where they actually spoke to each other instead of the one where they yelled at each other something along the lines of Americans don't panic. I just <laughs> I just put my hand my my face it was a big old facepalm moment of like oh my god did you did you, I guess you didn't come out of your basement and try to buy toilet paper at the end of March. Like, you know, I mean, people flipped out and lost their shit about toilet paper. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, take their food away. And and food got short, but it didn't go away. Like, we weren't even dealing with, like, World War II ration level of food. Oh, yeah. Just in, in the U.S., <laughs> let alone, like, ration level in Britain. Like, anybody that hasn't watched the documentaries on what rationing in Britain was like, it's like... Come on. And I don't think that this society could survive if they had to go through that. Oh, yeah, I agree. Again, it's one reason, you know, man, when, when we moved out to land back around 2009, tons of people were just like, what you doing? Like, yeah. Yeah, why would I'm just you like, do that? <laughs> yeah, they're like, why do you want to raise animals? You know, you know, maybe as a hobby. Yeah. And I'm just like, you all just don't understand the world you live in. No, you know, you. And I was like, yeah, you know, I might be wrong. It might be thirty years. It might be forty years before something happens that lets you see all the cracks in the facade and all the weaknesses that you know generally go unnoticed. I, I was like, but I'm okay with that bet because I also like having space and I just want to be away from your stupidity. <laughs> well, and you're also getting to a point where I think people like us are going to be 
some of the wealthiest people in society. And I don't necessarily mean in dollars, but in Buckminster Fuller's version of wealth, which is how long you can survive in days forward without a conventional income. Yeah. Because it doesn't matter if you're doing it with money or you're doing it with control of your own resources. I don't. If I have some of the best quality protein there is walking around my backyard that can be harvested as needed, I don't need money to go to the store and buy it. Oh, yeah. Well, and it's, and it's you, the same but better, right? Like Tommy Chong says, the same but different, man. It's the same but better, man, right? Because, first of all, I can't even buy that quality. It doesn't exist in a store, right? And then if I buy it, it means I have to get the money, pay tax on the money, and then buy the food with what's left, where if I just eat my chicken or eat my catfish swimming in my pond or whatever it is that day, I, I, I nothing happens. It's no transactional thing. And I think that's another reason government hates this. Like, think about how much money is made on this for them. And if you have this nation of small farmers and small holdings in like kind of the Jeffersonian model of everybody bartering and, and trading locally, they know that even if you sell – you know, your neighbor some eggs or whatever, they sell you some blackberries. You're not, no one's paying tax on that shit. It's never happening. Oh, it's yeah. not going through their system. It's not getting inspected. It's not getting rubber stamps. So it's not getting feed. It's not getting reported in the, in the you know, the gross national product. That's really important because that's what they base their lies on. Um, it doesn't factor into the consumer price index. It, like, it takes away so much from them, which is precisely why I think we should all do it. Because oh, yeah. of what it takes from them. It, it, okay, like we benefit and they get screwed. Like that's that's the win-win if there ever was, right? Well, it's what, one thing that kills me about libertarians who are like, you know, we need to weaken the government. I'm right. I'm like, well, why don't you support local farmers and grow some of your own food? Uh, I, I was like, there, there's nothing available in modern times that will weaken the government as much as you becoming more resilient and independent and you opting out of their systems. It's like, oh, free markets, efficiency, blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, yeah, I'm like, you really don't care about liberty. <laughs> well, it, right. It has nothing to do even with the free market. I mean, it does, but that's, that's not my case here. Right? That's my case in general for everything it, it, from my, my viewpoint in the world. But on this level, I'm just down to – what world do we live in where a person doesn't have a right to produce their own food or acquire their own food from the choice from the person they choose to acquire it from? It, 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 that's a free market thing, but it doesn't have to be. Like that should that should but, transcend politics, right? It, it doesn't, but it should. Like you should be able to take an avowed Marxist, a you know lunatune uh, leftist. A moderate leftist, a centrist, uh, a right-wing extremist, a, a centrist Republican, a total anarchist, like everybody in the room that you can come up with, and they all should be like, yeah, you know, you should be able to buy your neighbor's chicken if you want to. Like, no one, no one should object to that. And the number of people who do is staggering to me, because I always blame the government for this in the past as I was learning about it. And I was like, surely people are not okay with this. The number of people that are okay with it is... It's 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 mind bending. It really is. It I feel like the, the Neo learning about the bending spoon from the kid in the Matrix. Like <laughs> there is no spoon. These people are just stupid. That's what that actually means. There's no spoon. These people are idiots and they believe anything about the spoon you tell them, including the spoon is good for you. Swallow it.
Yep, it's it's just wild. So and you know it's so the question becomes, since you can't easily buy something directly from your neighbor, what do you do about it? And and you know that's why Joel approached me, guess four or so years ago, about doing a conference totally dedicated to circumvention rather than compliance. I love circumvention. It's my favorite. <laughs> yeah. It's I, I consider myself to be like a 12th degree black belt at state level jujitsu. <laughs> like no matter what restriction you give me, I will design around that shit. And that's what I love about rogue food, which is what we have you on to talk about. So On that, what happened last year? You had your first ever Rogue Food Conference. How did that work out? Oh, dude, it was amazing. So on the one hand, it was insane because the event was January 25th or 26th. No, you got it in under the wire. <laughs> and, and so, um, you know, it was right, right in that transition period. Um, and, dude, you know, like, I am so thankful for guys like you and other guys I'm friends with in the preparedness community Because we were getting ready to move our family to a new place. So we were actively looking to buy a new place. So we had like really streamlined everything at home. And some of my friends in the preparedness community late in December, early in January were like, hey, like you may want to, you know, look this over and maybe deepen your stores. Mm. You know, just it's so like. I came home January 15th or 16th with our minivan with like four months of additional supplies. And my wife and daughter looked at me and they were just like, what are you doing? And then, you know, we hit March and they were just like, people like you are the best. <laughs> <laughs> you know, cause like, we don't, you know, between what we could grow and what we had on hand, I was like, we could go a solid like eight, nine months before we have to go back to a store or yeah. anywhere. Yeah. You know, so we had the conference that had, had we sold tickets, you know, open tickets for the next event at the end of Saturday, we would have already sold out for this year's events. Wow. Um, people, you know, cause like, I mean, people are, you know, you could go to so many conferences where people will tell you the problems And you could go to some conferences where, you know, you can get solutions to, you know, powdery mildew on your cucumbers or this, that, and the other. But where can you go for people offering solutions for reclaiming liberty and actually, you know, pushing back against the government in an effective way? And, and you just, you know, there's very, you know, because like, sadly... You know, most Republicans spend 90% of their time whining about government and the other 100% of the time losing to government. Yeah. You know, yeah. Like, like this is Kentucky. Kentucky is a super majority red state. And If Republicans are, meant anything they say they mean. Oh, there shouldn't even be an issue in Kentucky. Like oh no, oh no they're they're the biggest cowards and sellouts. Um, you remember back in the '80s, John, how they had Ice Cream Man? Uh huh. And he came around playing turkey in a straw, and you ran up to him and he sold you ice cream. Like Kentucky's so red that if Republicans meant what they say they meant, there should be like a chicken a chicken man 
<laughs> driving around in a truck, right, playing like buck, 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 who like you just go out and you get your chicken and your eggs from. Oh. Like it, it should be. Like it should be. It, you know what? People are like, that's, that's funny, but I'm going to tell you something. When I was a kid, we had exactly that. We had a guy, I, his first name was Artsy. I have no idea what his real name or his last name was. He was known as The Butcher. He drove a little truck around, and he came to our house. And my grandmother bought, like, ham and bacon and steak and, and eggs and all from him. And that was a thing. And no one died, and no one thought it was weird. And we had another guy came around. I don't remember his name. They called him The Farmer, but he sold, like, egg, uh, like, uh, like milk and stuff like that. And I no you know again no one died, and that was a normal, a normal part of life in small town Pennsylvania in the 1980s. And I think today even there, it, it couldn't be done. And in, in Kentucky, it should be right. Like based on what the party platform is, there should be almost no regulation in the entire state. But they had time to pass a law. I saw like last week that it's now a crime to insult a police officer. Oh, dude, it's one reason like. I, I've been trying to get out of this state now yeah. for – it's been part of a four-year plan for our family to escape the stupidity of this state. Because the only the, – the biggest success of the Republicans in Kentucky over the past three years has been expanding government and increasing taxes. Good job, guys. As so, I said, it's it, the same thing. It's just different marketing. They're, yeah. they're the same people. Yep. You know, so Rogue was great. Everybody who attended was blown away. Our sponsors and vendors were super, super happy. And I am so glad I did not have another one scheduled at the time because we just went into insanity. Yeah. Um, you know, so had I already signed contracts or other stuff, my stress level would have been through the roof. Um, so, you know, we were like, oh, we did a great conference. Um, you know, maybe we'll do another one farther down the road. And uh, because of a number of factors, we're like, you know, that we, you know, I was getting emails and messages every week from people like, when are you doing this again? When are you going to do another Rogue Food? Like, when are you going to do it? When's it happening? And I kept, you know, kind of hunting, you know, kicking the can because, you know, just like, I don't want to get into planning an event in the middle of so much government stupidity. Um. And finally, you know, a few people got me motivated enough, and I found some venues that I felt were going to be great to play ball. I was like, you know, we're going to do two smaller rogue foods this year because uh, we're going to do them at farms. We're, you know, we're basically going to go even more rogue with rogue awesome. and and do them, you know, do them in places and ways where nobody's going to be able to give us a hard time. Um and so, yeah, so we're doing one in Tennessee on June 5th, and then one at Polyface on August 14th. Okay. Um, so we're pretty stoked. And, you know, we're using some more regional speakers, because um, who wants to get on a plane if you have to get jabbed up the ass? Uh, just, to, you know, just, I'm just like, what on, you know, like, like I quit flying forever ago because of TSA. Yeah. I'm just like, I should not have to get microwaved or molested in order to travel within my own country, you know? Yeah. So I already was done with 
air travel. Um, and now, you know, it's a whole new level of, you know, put on this bubble suit and gosh, it's just, it's just so dumb. So much stupidity. Yeah. So we're going to do two of them. Um, we have some of our old speakers back. We have some super cool new speakers and we're just kind of gearing up to have another really fun time teaching people. Oh, just how to annoy the hell out of government officials. You know what? Because I've noticed they don't like it when you tell them there's nothing they can do and they realize you're right. They tend <laughs> to get really upset about that. They're like, well, see, it says right here in your book that this is the, the, the situation where you can do this thing you want to do. And I don't see that that situation's occurred here. Do you? Yeah. They get, oh, really, yeah, they get really mad. The only way to make them matter is when you call them Scooter. I don't know why. <laughs> when you call a bureaucrat Scooter, they get really pissed off. I learned that from Ron White. <laughs> I've never tried that one. Hey, so Scooter. Yeah, it's nice that you're here to, to write up a citation. Did you, are you aware that I live where there are no codes and you're out of your jurisdiction, Scooter? They get really pissed when you tell them that. Oh, man. What are you guys building here? Well, since you don't live here and this is a non-coded area, none of your business, Scooter, they get really mad. There's nothing they can do, though. <laughs> well, and, and that's the hard part is, you know, like, you know, people need, you know, one reason – government thinks they have so much authority is because people act like they do when they don't, you know, so it's, it's coming up on the 10 year anniversary when the Kentucky state health department raided our buying club and served us cease and desist in quarantine orders. And basically we just said, you don't have authority to do this. And Had we, had we just gone along with them, they would have picked up new authority that legally and otherwise they never had. You know, so much of it is just people being like, no, actually, no, you really don't. <laughs> Go pound sand, find something better to do with yourself. You know, and, and people, you know, because one of the things I love about the rogue food speakers is they're constantly, you know, what you're talking about this you know, governmental jujitsu. Yeah. Looking for areas to exploit to get themselves out of being under the government's eyes and thumb. And how are, you know, how do you do that? What are areas this is available? You know, where could you push the boundaries? Um, you know, all kinds of stuff. And I mean, there's there's so many ways that this is being done. We just had on Unloose the Goose, Nicole Sauce interviewed somebody I know that works for you, with you, uh, on the concept of like food churches. Yeah, DT. Yeah, DT is going to be back. And what's awesome this year is, you know, last year she spoke about, you know, 501c3 food churches. Yeah. And this year, one of the main farmers who supplies her food church. Yeah. Who also, cre who also does their own butchering. You know, so like. Um, you, you know, the butcher we use to butcher some of the animals from our farm on March 1st, they started taking booking appointments for the second half of the year at hmm. nine in the morning. Hmm. And when they opened the door at nine in the morning, the lady told me there was a line of over a hundred people waiting hmm. and their phone did not stop ringing. Wow. Until like Thursday. Wow. And they booked out on that Saturday 
for the entire rest of the year. This is this is going to be a huge problem, probably for two or more years, is my guess. Is, you know, like for my local buying club, we have animals, but we have nowhere to get them butchered. Yeah, and and so, you know, so this is what the Jacksons found themselves where, and when they were getting their animals butchered. They'd send them to the butcher, and they'd get them back in, like, two months. Yeah, yeah. And they're like, is this even my animal? Yeah. Um, And so the Jacksons, you know, they looked at their numbers, and they're just like, we just need to build our own butchering facility. You You know, and they're like, but we don't want to be an inspected butchering facility. And so, how, you know, what do you do and where do you go? How do you do that? So that's what they're going to be speaking about. You know, create, you know, how do you, how do you make meat available to people that you're butchering yourself in a non-inspected facility legally? Yeah, it's hard. You know, know, like what, you know, but, but there's more and more people who, you know, want the, want to explore these kind of options, um, you know, to really be able to figure out like, man, I want to raise animals. I want to feed my community. Um, how do I share ownership? So we can butcher these animals together. So, yeah, and that's what I really appreciate about the different people who come to the conference is is they all are doing it. And I think we need more people with the resources and the skills to do this, too. Like years and years ago, I raised um, like 70 uh, Red Ranger broilers. And we were doing one of my workshops, and I'm like, why don't we just do a bonus day? So anybody that wanted to could come a day early, and we did a bonus day of processing chickens. And I um, showed everybody how to do this, and we used five-gallon buckets to bleed the animals into, with a little bit of wood chips on the bottom, and two pieces of string to basically hang them by their feet from an oak tree. And then we did, you know, scalding with a just a big pot on a on a on a, a propane burner, and we did we hit hand plucking. And I have nothing against any of the equipment to make this easier. But I did it that way for a reason, and, and then when I was like, well, why don't you have killing cones? What about a plucker? I'm like, okay, who owns a plucker? No hands go up. Uh, actually, one one guy had to have one, right? You know, like one hand go, okay, one guy. Like, <laughs> who has killing cones? Same guy sticks his hands up. Nobody else has uh, hands up. I'm like, who here has string in a five-gallon bucket and a knife and a yep. pot and water? And, like, every hand goes up. I'm like, okay. So if you, it's like learning to drive a stick shift before an automatic or like learning to drive like a, a Kawasaki 250, you know, dirt bike before you even learn how to drive a car. Like once you can do that, you know, you can, you know, one, one down, four up with your foot and, and use a hand clutch. You're going to be able to drive anything. And, and like, so when I teach people to butcher, I like to start with, can you butcher with what you have? And then when you add anything to it from there, it just gets easier. Oh Yeah. Yeah, I'm always amazed at people who, you know, it's like I meet people who have never grown a tomato. Yeah. And they buy a tractor. Yeah, yeah, and, oh, yeah. And I'm just like, you you know, you have an inversion of the skills pyramid here that is going to cost you greatly. Oh, greatly. Um, like, so with that, what that actually makes me think of totally different space, but it's the same mindset. The people that they get married. You know, they're, they're 20, late 20s, early 30s, and they're going to have a kid. So they, the wife gets pregnant, 
and they run out and they buy a minivan or an SUV or something for like $60,000 to quote-unquote cart the kids around in. First kid's not even born yet. <laughs> they're talking about taking them to soccer matches and their friends and their siblings and all. You don't even have a kid yet, right? Like, your, your, your Dodge Omni was good enough for at least the first year, right? And you have no idea the expense that's coming. But I've, I've actually had friends in my life, I would say more acquaintances than friends, that I've seen do that. Like, well, would you, would you go get a Suburban for it? Oh, we're going to have to cart the kids around. Didn't your wife get pregnant like last month? Yeah, is it that going to be your first kid? Yeah, like, and you don't even buy, like, oh, whatever. And it's the same yeah. thing, you know, I'm going to start growing my own food. <laughs> so they go out and buy like a freaking $16,000 used Kubota. Oh, yeah. And, and what I'd love to do is get enough people moved in around me where it made sense to get something like that and share it. Oh, yeah. Because I don't need one. If I needed one, I'd get one, right? But it'd be nice to have one, you know, a few days a year here and there. Man, you're like stealing all my favorite lines. Because <laughs> <laughs> like my log splitter. You know, I yeah. own a $2,000 log splitter. I use it two days a year. Yeah. Like maybe, maybe three days a year. You, you know, and it's, um, you know, Massey a couple years ago called me and he's like, hey, he's like, what are you doing in a few weeks? I was like, you know, I'm just farm and homestead and whatnot, write books or whatever. He's like, he's like, can you drive up and help me butcher chickens? Um. And he's like, oh, he's like, anytime you want to borrow my chicken butchering setup, because he, you know, yeah. he got a scalder and all of that from yeah. a, a business that was closing in his county. There's so much infrastructure that is really nice to have. Yeah. It is so much better to own as a community in some way. Fractional like, ownership, day rental, whatever. I don't, you know, it doesn't even matter. Like some solution that is. Outside of their jurisdiction, like when I went to Ben Falk's, uh, God, it had to be six, seven years ago now, and I was a guest speaker at one of his PDCs. He, his PDCs are a little bit more reality, I think, than some. So uh -huh. he had a pretty good batch of kosher kings that he had pastured with his sheep, and it was time for them to graduate to freezer camp. Well, he brings a guy in to teach how to do this, and they did use a scalder and killing cones and all that stuff. Um, but this guy's business, he had all the equipment. He came to your place. He butchered your animals for you for a set price per bird. Yeah. And it was like three bucks a chicken. Oh, yeah. And I'm like, if you lived where I live, I would never put a knife on a chicken again. <laughs> ever. 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 And if, so if you get somebody set up like, and he was good. Like, the students ended up doing a lot of it themselves so they could learn. But he was, you, you've seen people who do it every day and how quick they are. He well, was amazing. And I was like, if you had this guy, then you could have thousands of people like me processing on farm. Because I don't have to do it for it to be on farm processing. It just has to happen on my farm. Because I could easily run easily 500 birds a year. And it'd be a nice little side income. John, I don't want to do the, I don't want to do the processing. I don't want to. I just don't. It's not that I'm opposed to it. I just, I have other things in my effing life. Now, I can run a few chicken tractors and a few cycles, and I actually enjoy that. That's my morning ritual. I drink my coffee. I'm out there with my ducks and my dogs. So I don't mind doing that side of it. But if we could just get somebody like that around here, we can, there's tons of people in my neck of the woods, three to ten acres. That's all you need to be able to do something like that. And we could transform the food system here. But you got to find oh, yeah. somebody that wants to do it. And I think that the way to do it is probably 
You got to find somebody that you can bet on to do it. And then all the farmers go in together and pay for the equipment. And then he gets use of the equipment as long as he does the, the it fulfills his contract. And if he stops fulfilling his contract, you replace him and somebody else gets use of that equipment. Kind of like, I don't know how to say it, like more like a, like a sharecropper of equipment. Like it really is his equipment to take care and maintain. He keeps it infinitely until he's like not doing the work anymore. Because if you buy somebody all that shit and then they don't work out, you've got a problem. Yeah. You know, maybe he has a t maybe there's a timeline to where he earns the rights fully, or so, I don't know. Like I guess every every situation is different, like it should be. Yeah, well, and this and this is what Rogue is all about. Is like we come together, different people are are taking you know different ways to chip away or build alternatives, and that inspires discussion. And, and new things come about or improvements. Yeah. You, you know, and that's one of the things we just love about the event is people walk away and they're like, oh, like I never even thought I could do this. Or they think, man, you thought of this. Have you ever thought of that? Mm -hmm. You know, you know, like this idea, you know, like, oh man, you know, if there's 30 or 40 homesteaders in a single county who each raise 50 or 100 chickens, You know, like, and you can get one person to all do all the butchering. Well, the, you know, you built a job. And now what, you know, like most of us don't need 50 or 100 chickens. No, ourselves. no. So ha have you ever thought about, um, you know, so like what we do for our buying club sometimes for chicken is we will buy the baby chicks and we will pay someone to raise them sure. for us. So there are chicks. So the the chicks aren't the chicken isn't being sold to us. No, it's your chicken. It's just a it's just a labor contract. You paid me to feed your chicken and make sure it didn't die until it was the right time for it to die. Yeah, and it, and it's pay for performance though. Totally legal. Where, totally legal. You know, yeah, and so like you could take your idea of a private butcherer who travels around in a small area. Yep. And combine it with you know, a pay to raise chicken contract. So sure. you can actually sell some of the chickens you raise. Yep. So you can raise, you know, three batches and get a little bit of economy of scale. Yep. And, and you know, and that's, that's just what I love about the event is, and then the nice thing is people actually go and try these. And then I get emails. And when people come back this year, they're going to be discussing how it's going. See, what I love about that model right there is it, it it's, it's total circumvention. It's it's complete and glorious circumvention. The only way to make it better is everybody pays with a cryptocurrency called R. So it's private. <laughs> right? That's the only way to make it better, right? Or Monero or something. But like, so what you can do with that model that's brilliant is instead of all these individual producers seeing each other's competition, they see each other as part of the same system. We are all in this together for real, not the way they say on TV about wearing masks. So that... What makes the most sense then is if, you know, Dennis behind me gets in on this and he's raising 200 birds and I'm raising 200 birds a cycle, that our birds not come to graduation camp on the same week. So we can actually stagger this so it's already prearranged that Bill, the butchering guy, right, knows on J July 15th, 2021, I'm going to Jack's house. On July 16th, I'm going to Dennis's house right behind him. 
right? Or I'm going to do Dennis and Jack in the same day, and then the, the next day I'm going to be down the road at Mark and Tom's, right? And you can scale all that out, and then I don't have to – I'm not sitting here with hundreds of birds that I have to store and put in commercial freezers for. I can have all my members come pick up the day the processing happens, or maybe somebody – brings your bird to you. You've contracted them separately. They're just picking your bird up for you. That person might actually work for me, but that doesn't really matter. You I, you subcontracted them. You see what I'm saying? Like, There's so many ways at this point where, I well, you, Mr. Spirko, you're raising chickens and having somebody butcher them. And I, I, don't, I, I don't have anybody butcher anything. A butcher doesn't work for me. He just comes here. Well, these aren't my chickens. These are John's chickens. John's chickens are in that tractor. Bill's chickens are in that tractor. Frank, I think, let me check my book. Yeah, Frank's are in there. <laughs> last name. Oh, no, do you have a warrant? No, I can't give you last names. I'm sorry. No. Yeah. In fact, wait a minute. Um, are you a member of my, my club here where we, we do all this? You're not? You don't have a membership card? Oh, and no warrant either. Oh, oh. Gee, you're not supposed to be here, are you? You're not supposed to be here, are you? Really? I mean, bye-bye. Right, like we're done. We're done having this conversation. It does whatever you're accusing me of doesn't even exist, and they don't have any regulations for this because they don't think this way. Yeah, well, it, yeah, it, and it's it's just beautiful. And you know, the other thing is, instead of seeing each other as competition, you know, if if you have thirty or forty people raising a hundred or two hundred chickens, yeah, you're just by nature not competition. They're not enough. Yeah, you, you, know, you like, can't fill one Kroger for a week. Yeah, it sounds like know. a lot, but it's it's not. I think that one of the things that people in our space tend to not understand is how big the problem is. When I yeah. did my presentation for Diego's uh, third uh, Permaculture Voices, I looked up what is the total dollar value of food sold in just. Just the big supermarkets in America a year. And at the time, and this is seven years, eight years ago, it was $680 billion in food. And that's just the Kroger's, the Albertsons, et cetera. That's, that's not the Piggly Wigglies and all the other little ones. That's just the Mega Marts. You can't even really begin to understand how much food that is and how much food this country goes through on a daily basis. Local producers producing 10,000 birds a year are not even in competition. There's, there's, oh, yeah. You haven't even scratched the market yet. Yeah, the, the way I tell people, like with our buying club, is even in the biggest year our buying club has ever had, which was almost a million dollars of local food. That's damn good. That is um, a single aisle in one of the Kroger's up in Louisville in a month. Yeah, that's about right. It's it's just nothing. Like if like, you're yeah, talking like, produce and meat, it sure as hell is about right. I mean, if you're talking about lentils, it's probably not the big deal. But when you're talking about quality produce and meat, that's expensive stuff, and that's probably yeah. about a big big store probably does that about a month. Yeah, it's just you know it's um, yeah. So you know one way you stop seeing as competition it is just to realize like the market the market is bigger than an ocean. I would say this, and I don't think people understand this either. The biggest reason people don't buy local is they don't have the option. It's not a money issue. There are people down the road from me. These people clearly have more money than brains. I mean, they <laughs> just look at their houses, and you're like, 
oh, my God, you have more money than brains. And, you know, there's a lot of caring Karens and selective Susans down there. And if I had the supply, I guarantee you that neighborhood I'm talking about is a mile and a half away from me. I could have a kid with an order sheet walk through that neighborhood, and probably every third house is going to sign up for a delivery. It's a supply side issue. It's not a demand issue at all. Yeah. Well, you know, as the the supply issues are still, I mean, I mean, like, man, for our buying club, yeah, we we just are always having gaps. We are trying to fill. You know, there are so many products. If we could actually get them from a local farmer, we would be buying them. You know, yeah, and they either we have to either buy them from the organic system, um, or we just have to go without. So, so there's so much opportunity. We definitely need um, more regional producers. There's, there's no doubt about that. So, well, but especially regional producers, though, who are going to not opt into the impossible system. Yeah. Of every year they add more hoops. You know, we had a great cheese farmer. Okay. Uh, when the buying club first started, really great cheese farmer out of uh, Pennsylvania. Man, they just had such great cheese. And we worked with them for six years, and they're Amish Mennonite-type people. Um, so they would send us things. Uh, you know, they'd send letters. <laughs> okay. You know, they, they had a business phone, but they did a lot of their communication through letters. And over the course of the five, six years we're working with them, uh, you know, they, they'd always send a couple update letters a year. And they'd be like, hey, like, we're happy to increase our prices this year because of this new regulation from the yeah. Pennsylvania Department of Health. We're happy to increase our prices this next year because, you know, they're the yeah. Amish, so, like, they're very straight shooting with you. Yeah. You know, so there's, like, you know, this is the new regulation we now have to follow. And finally, after six years, they sent a letter saying this will be the last year we do cheese. It's just not worth like, it anymore. Yeah, because they, they just said, like, you know, we – we're done being on this hamster wheel where every rotation is a new round of regulations and hoops. Hmm. Um, you know, and, and I was like, man, I wish you were in Kentucky because maybe we would buy your cows. Yeah. And, and we would own the cows yeah. and it would be our milk and we pay you to, you know, we pay you to care for the cows yeah, and pay you to turn their milk into cheese under a labor contract. Yeah. You know, and like, And it's uh, member-owned for member-benefit co-op, so piss off government. Oh, yeah, exactly. You know, but, but it's it's building sufficient local community to support some of these ventures and ideas. Well, and this is a complicated thing, right? Because, honestly, you might make some mistakes and kill some birds, but I can teach you everything that you need to know to brood and pasture-raise with tractors, Cornish cross chickens in a couple days. And as long as you do what I teach you, it will work. It's not that hard. <laughs> making cheese, making cheese is a skill. Oh, like yeah. You don't just start making cheese. I guess some people do, but not the kind of cheese you're talking about. You know, where you're talking about like aged cheddar or something like that. You're, and and it, can it come up with a really great product? And there's infrastructure involved and methodology. And uh, cows are not chickens. Cows require, like, if a cow can figure out how to kill itself, it'll do it. Like I was, when I first started dealing with cows, I'm like, oh God, I thought sheep were stupid. Holy shit. Like these things are like, 
It, like, oh, gee, look at all the acorns. I, I could eat some of these and be happy, but no, I think I'm going to gorge on these to, like, kill myself with tannic acid. Oh, look at this. It's an Osage orange. I'll eat these until I'm impacted. Like, anything they can do to kill themselves, they'll do it. So, like, you, it, it's a learning curve to, to be able to raise enough cows, produce enough milk, to make enough cheese, to serve even one entity like you're talking about. So it takes time, and, and then people are, don't want to put the time in because the regulations get in the way. So we need more and more people, like, where it's understood from the beginning, like, it is you, you can make this risk. You can put the money into this. You can do this because your market's waiting for you. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, like with our buying club, we're going to have a serious discussion with the members about moving some of the butchering into the club. Because since we're buying whole animals yeah, and they're just going to the members, we could do that. And because of the butchering crunch, you know, if we don't want to have some significant product shortages, that might be the only option. But then, you know, you do have a learning curve. Yeah. And you do have an upfront capital investment. Yeah. But I mean, even when, cutting meat is a skill. Oh, yeah. Like, when I'm talking oh. about, you know, processing, slaughter, all that, skinning, I'm just talking, we're down to primals and we're cutting. It takes a while to get good at that. Oh, yeah. You so, know? Yeah, um, you know, to speak of what you said earlier about the guy who travels around butchering chickens, years ago I was down at a farm in Kentucky um, that was just starting to offer uh, chicken, cut-up chickens. Uh, you know, so instead of buying a whole chicken, you could buy the whole chicken, and then for a couple extra bucks, it would be cut up into its pieces. And to teach us to do that, they had the Kentucky State Fair Champion Chicken Cutter Upper. <laughs> Jack, the dude was like a samurai. Yeah, I've seen so people he, like that. Like, he had the chicken sitting in front of us. Yeah. And he pulled out, you know, what looks like not that different from a pocket knife almost. Yeah. And he looks at us. He goes, okay. He goes, I'm going to show you how to cut up a chicken. And and I, I don't even remember seeing his hand move. And the bird just fell into pieces. And, and all of us were just like, what just happened? Like, he could cut up a whole chicken into pieces in under 30 seconds. Yeah. Yeah. With, with perfection. You know, and, and you begin to realize, like, man, there really is something to a certain amount of specialization for getting some tasks done. And, you know, you don't always have to be that good, but even just being basically competent, it does take some time to where, because a customer wants, I should, I'm sorry, a member wants that steak that's, you know, uh, three quarters of an inch thick. They want it three quarters of an inch thick everywhere. And it yeah, seems really steaks. easy, but I remember the first deer when I was like 13. My uncle showed me how to butcher a deer, and the next one we got, he said, okay, you're doing everything. And I ended with some steaks that looked like, you know, they were like paper thin on one end and taking it. He goes, don't worry about it. We're, we're, we're grinding this entire deer, and we're making sausage out of it. This is just for you to learn. But And then there was a sense of pride over time as I got really good at it. And you learn things like, hey, get this meat almost frozen, you know, and you get a much better cut. It takes time to develop this. And if you're going to develop these types of entities, you need skilled people in them to do, be able to do this. Because 
It is easy. This is flat out the reality. It is easier to raise animals than to process them, and it's easier to process them than to sell them. You got to be able to do all three if you're going to do this direct to consumer model. I think that a lot of people that would be good growers they don't want to be processors or marketers, and that's where this type of thing has a lot of power. And it also is, to me, it's the only real way to circumvent the system other than doing everything for yourself by yourself. Because yep. as soon as you start to involve other people, that's where all the regulations come in. So if we can get everybody kind of on the same team, so to speak, you know, I mean, I can even see in some situations where maybe you create a company and you give everybody a share. Well, now everybody's an owner. Go away. Everybody here's an owner. Are you an owner, Mr. Bureaucrat? You're not? Go away. Where's your employees? We don't have any. Everybody's an owner. Even if you're an employee, you're still an owner. You see what I mean? Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, you get, and that's where, you know, you, you know, I train judo, which is closely related to jujitsu. And one of the fundamental principles of judo is using your opponent's energy and aggression against them. And, and, and that's a lot of what people can do right now. It's like, you know, Nitty noticed 501c3s have a lot of, you know, protections built into them yeah. that make you... You know, Camise Davis noticed that educational cooperatives could completely opt out of certain things in terms of regulatory burden and whatnot. Uh, and so it's just, you know, what are things they put in place that we could use in ways they never expected or anticipated? And don't have the agility to to correct for, right? Like, like. Getting there's a reason they use the term "act of Congress" to get something done. It's complicated, right? So you have to be big enough that the lobbyist cares. And I think, frankly, most of this this right now, it is such a small thing that the lobbyist doesn't. They don't have time to care. They're busy worried about other shit. And I, I feel like we're under the radar enough now that they can all get big enough that by the time they care, it's kind of too late. Yeah. Because once people have something, they don't want to take it away. That's why people say, "What's the number one thing I can do for Second Amendment?" Get your non-gun-owning friends trained and buy them a gun, right? Because then it's you're taking my gun, right? So when it's like, well, they're outlawing raw milk. Most people don't give two shits. They don't know what that means. Yeah. But, oh, you're taking away the milk that my kids drink? No. No. And that's what you have to do. You have to get people vested into these things, and then they'll defend them. Because right now people have no interest in defending this stuff because they don't know what it is. They don't even have a clue. Even the ones that are buying the product don't understand that they're buying the product. Yeah. Well, and, and that's what made the difference when our buying club was raided by the state of Kentucky. Um, you know, we were served cease and desist in quarantine orders. Uh-huh. And we put up a sign right next to the cease and desist in quarantine orders. Yeah. And, you know, and, and we told our members, we're just like, this is your milk. This isn't our milk. Yep. This is milk from your cows. Yep. You know, this is food you all own. Yep. And, and so we put up a sign that said, you know, I the undersigned in accordance with my, you know, Kentucky constitutional rights and my God-given rights and whatever, have taken my milk from my cows. <laughs> and if anyone at the health department has a problem with this, yeah, they can reach me at the phone number and name listed below. Mm. And only... Out of like 150 families, I think only three or four did not sign. Okay, you're out. And well, but the bigger thing is though, now the health department really didn't know what to do. Yeah, how could they? 
Because what are they going to do, like, throw lawyers and professors and policemen and pastors in jail for breaking their quarantine? Yeah. You know, because the quarantine has all these warnings, you know, breaking this quarantine and this cease and desist yeah. order is subject to, you know, immediate misdemeanor, whatever. Yeah. It, it, so getting people vested where it is, you know, like members of our buying club, you know, it, they understand like this is their food. And so they will fight if the government comes looking to try and try and give us trouble. And then they know we will fight smart, you know, because it's not enough to just fight, but you have to be able to fight smart. Um, and yeah, so that's just, that's what Rogue is all about. R really creating workable alternatives um, that, that people can embrace, copy, innovate on, or be inspired to try other ideas, you know, so we can rebuild resilience and community, you know, at the local level. And this thinking works everywhere with uh, you're an owner, you're a private guest, you're a private member, whatever. I was in uh, Florida last year, right when all the shit went really crazy with all the new restrictions with COVID. Like we were already into it. Florida largely hadn't done anything. They never had a statewide mask mandate, but some of the counties uh, did. And we were in Lee County in Sanibel, Florida. And right in the middle of this, the uh, the Lee County Council put this you know thing out about wearing masks and including beaches and all this stupidity. And so the hotel did what it needed to do. It posted the order from the county, and then right under it, it said, "And as a reminder, the beaches at you know so and so hotel are private beaches for the use of our guests and owners only." and not subject to public regulation or something to that effect, which basically meant here's all the things they say you have to do, and here's why you don't have to do it. <laughs> and everybody just was fine. Okay, great. Okay, yeah. And just well, everybody it, went on about their life. Nobody came and arrested anybody because you don't, you don't live here, officer. Um, you don't work here. You're not a paying guest, and you don't have a warrant. I don't know why you're here. This is private yeah. property. And they, they didn't even have to have that conversation because I'll tell you what, if you're a cop on Sanibel Island, you're just grateful that you're a cop on Sanibel Island. Like, you're like <laughs> this is good. I'm retiring here. I'm done. Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, the only thing that sucks know, is like once a week you pull traffic detail at the three-way, right? That, like, that's it. <laughs> yeah. But well, I've loved all the businesses that have been willing. And this is what we did for, you know, the buying club's not a business. Um but but just to head this off at the pass, we put a sign up on our door. Yeah. It said, hey, like, you know, the governor says you're supposed to wear a mask. Um, you know, like, we don't know your medical and health history. <laughs> and, and, and we know we know that masks are not recommended for a wide range of health okay. conditions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it is not our job to ask you no. your medical and health history. Yeah. So in, if in you compliance come in with, with HIPAA, we'll never ask. Yeah, and we just said, you know, like, we're, we're never going to ask you why you're not wearing a mask. Yeah. yeah. So if you don't have a mask on, you know, and, and we just said, you know, some of our staff has medical health history. Yeah. And, and you know, our, our members have been, you know, our members have been super chill because some of them wore masks for a time. They understood we weren't going to enforce that. 
Yeah, we had a couple members who were a little peeved that we weren't going to require masks. Um, and they left for a time, and then they okay. realized that I have the best food in Louisville. Yep. yep. And so they came back. Yep. Um, yep. They also probably they just, realized they weren't going to die, right? They yeah. weren't going to fall over and die because they, they, they drove in their car without their mask on. Um, yeah. What, what happened around here was we did have the statewide mandate. It did not apply to outdoors ever at all, Infinity. It never uh -huh. had anything to do with outdoors. It only was with business establishments. And they basically threatened the business establishment because it was directly in conflict with the Texas State Constitution. And for, for his faults, Abbott's pretty good about, like, I'm not going to go do stuff that's non-constitutional in my own state because I don't like losing. Not because I'm a great guy, because I don't like losing in court, right? So, like, I'm not doing this because I'm going to lose. And so they figured out this loophole they can make the businesses do it. Well, the businesses were like, so it's our obligation to put up a sign that says these people are supposed to comply with it. It's not our obligation to make them. I mean, some businesses are stupid and they tried, but most of the businesses are like, so, like, that's your problem. So they just put the sign up, and then if you walked in without a mask on, they just didn't care. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that was probably, I'd say, 80% of the businesses uh, here – You follow, and all I did was if I went into a place and they gave me shit about it, I'm like, okay, so are you asking me to leave or asking you to put a mask on? Okay, I'm not going to put a mask on. Under that circumstance, are you asking me to leave? Yes. Okay, you're a private business. You can ask me to leave. Goodbye. And yeah. you're off the list, right? Or you're on the enemy's list either way, right? Like, I don't, I don't do business here. I'm almost, I don't know if you've ever heard of a, a, an app, John, called Safe to Carry. And it's like an iPhone app, and it tells you all the businesses where it's, you're allowed to carry and where you're not. Oh, in Texas, though, because of that. Or is that true just anywhere? Anywhere. Anywhere. Because okay. some places, there's different – almost every place with right to carry in some way, shape, or form has some loophole that if I don't want you carrying – and I'm okay with this, by the way. If I don't want you to carry at my place of business, and I own control and pay for this place, then I have a right to tell you you cannot. Yeah, and, and I, 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 told, I, I cannot have the position I do with all these other issues and say that's not okay. I really, yeah. it's, it's not something I don't like it. But this is just basically an app. It's like, okay, well, I need to go buy beer. Okay, this place says I can't care. This place says I can't. Okay, I'm gonna go here, right? Yep. And, and like, and then we also have like a very specific way that it has to be posted here. There's a compliance citing a code. It's a specific sign. And if it's not that exact sign, it, it, it doesn't apply to you because you're a licensed carrying holder, right? So, like, you'll see things like the unlicensed possession of a weapon. Okay, well, I don't have that. I have the licensed possession of a weapon, you know, that type of thing. But I think there's a lot of things like that where people are, like, they're circumventing the solution, the situation by just let's identify the places where we're not doing this and let's go do business with people who are. Yep. But there's a war on that, too, I mean, honestly. As, as, as parlor. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and, you know, like, people people have to have a fighting spirit. You know, and one of the reasons I started my buying club and I've done some of the other stuff I do in terms of, you know, me and Max Kane and some other people illegally took raw milk from Pennsylvania right to the footsteps of the FDA in Silver Springs, Maryland. Awesome. And we told them ahead of time we were doing, we're doing it. this. You did Gandhi's walk to the sea. Right. And so when we showed up, 
you know, like 300 of us showed up for this event we organized. Yeah. And we were greeted by 20 or 30 Homeland security vehicles and like 20 Silver Springs police vehicles. You know, it's, it's a bunch of moms and dads of small kids who drink raw milk. Yeah. You, you don't even see this kind of turnout for, you know, the other. So, like, one of the reasons I've been willing to risk getting arrested multiple times now is, is not so much for me, but for my kids. Like, if we don't start pushing back and, and actually fighting and trying to not just preserve ground, but regain ground, what are our kids and grandkids going to have left? Nothing. That's the answer. Like, there's going to be you know, nothing and, left. Yeah, and, and so that's a big thing that, like, when Joel approached me about doing Rogue as an event, what got me really excited is, you know, I have six kids now. So I look at them pretty much every day. And I have to think about what what am I leaving them, you know, in terms of so many different areas of life. And, uh, you know, and it motivates me to continue to chip away and try and create alternatives and solutions and really highlight other people who are creating alternatives and solutions that my kids can be a part of. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit before we wrap up here about Rogue Food itself, the conference. What kind of things will people get to learn if they come to one of the two conferences this year? Yeah, I mean, it's it's just like, you know... Like all the shit church. we're talking about, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, basically, like, that is it. Like, you know, Max Kane has been running raw milk from Wisconsin into Chicago for two decades. Uh, and, and again, these are people who, like, I've been raided by my state health department. Max was formally charged by the Wisconsin DACTAP. Oh, good Lord. It was in court for like four or five straight years, and he so flummoxed them that they finally just walked away. Uh, you know, so like, we're not just people who are like, hey, try this solution. We're people who actually took it all the way of facing the government down over what we were doing and won. Yeah. Um, so, you know, Max will be talking about what he's done. They do be talking about food churches. The Jacksons are going to be talking about, you know, shared ownership models to build a butcher on farm. Um, you know, Andrew Cooper Ryder was one of the few business owners in all of Kentucky to stand up to our governor openly. And so he's going to be talking about the creative use of social media to, you know, basically poke the government in the eye when they're coming after you with enforcement actions um, along, you know, because the story of brood in Kentucky and also of beans is just a great, great story. Um, and, and what they've done and the number of times they've sued the governor, the, the, those two businesses have done more to stymie our run amok governor than our entire state Republican party combined, <laughs> which is pathetic and sad, but it's true. Um, so Andrew's going to be speaking. Nicole Sauce is going to be speaking. Um, and that's super cool in terms of how she's innovating, you know, uh, everything she's done to build a business outside the system 
and where where it's going to go next, um, given the insane regulations she's trying to not get sucked into. Um, yeah, so it's, you know, it's just going to be a good time. Congressman Thomas Massey will be speaking again. Um, and, and then there's lots of time built into the schedule for people to talk to the speakers and to talk to one another. You know, because uh, uh, that's the only reason. Because people are like, why do you do this in person? Um, you, you know, there's that opportunity in person to have discussion and stuff that you just don't get online. And, and that's something that the people last year said was invaluable. So there'll also be good blocks of time to interact with the speakers and other people um, to, to talk through different ideas. Yeah, I think that the relationship thing, it, it cannot be overstated how important it is. It really, I mean, like, I, I try to tell people that in any of these conferences, any of these events, any of these workshops, like, as much as you're here to learn from speakers and all, do not let go of the opportunity to leave here knowing five or six people you wouldn't have otherwise met that care about the same things you do and figure out what you guys can do together. Yep, exactly. And so just so we don't forget it, for TSP listeners, if they want to come to the event, when you go to the Rogue Food website, they could use coupon code TSP30 to get 30 bucks off one of the tickets to the event. TSP30. Okay, and that's sure 30 that's numerical. Yep. I'll make sure that's in the show notes. Uh, what do you think we can expect in the food and farming space as a whole in the coming decade? Oh, I, I think it's just going to continue to be this pitched battle of, on the one hand, there's a certain amount of consumer preference for local small farm food. And then there's the governmental corporate pressure to either co-opt that or stamp it out of existence. And that's just going to continue, you know, because as I said earlier, the USDA would rather see people starve and animals die than let something like the Prime Act ever get passed, you, you know, that, that changes the meat regulatory landscape. Um, so it's, it's, you know, the other thing that's going to be really interesting is you know, depending on, we, I don't think we'll get these numbers for another year or so, but the massive displacement of people because of COVID and because it's so much easier to work remotely now. How is that, go, you know, it's kind of like your mm -hmm. example earlier with gun regulation. You know, once somebody's a gun owner, they they have a much stronger visceral response to gun regulation. Absolutely. Because now it's you know, yours. Yeah, you know, so if there's two or three million more people now who are growing food and living in rural areas, is that going to change some of the balance in terms of right to farm and other regulations and other things? Because, you know, because there's, I assume there's just a lot more people now growing their own food than a year and a half ago. I know that. There's no um, doubt. You can look at a garden center and see that. Yeah. And right. so how that, you know, now that people are invested in those things, they kind of care a bit more 
about right to farm or other stuff. So how all of that's going to shake out, you know, but I think you've talked about this some on your show. I think the biggest wild card for the next decade is going to be, you know, whenever the economic crap hits the fan. Yeah. You know, if we get a recession or a depression and how that shakes out uh, on so many levels is going to be, because you, know, you, you saw like with the last depression that hit America, it had massive ramifications in food and farming. Um, you, you know, and so it's really hard to say what all is going to happen because I'm sitting here going, you know, are we at six trillion in stimulus now? Yeah. Like, you know, Nick, Nick Ferguson and I talk a couple times a week, and we're just trying to mentally process what does this even mean and how does this even work anymore? Like, I woke up this morning, and there were five more digits in my bank account yeah. than when I went to bed. They, they just magically appeared. How, did, how does that work? You know, so, um, you know, I think we're going to see – Institute for Justice and other other groups continue to make good headway on cottage food. Um, you know, on the political side, cottage food is one of the best things you can do at the state level in terms of, like, if you actually want to be involved with the political process, you know, expanding cottage food like they've done in Maine and in, um, I think it's Wyoming or Montana, who have really, really expansive cottage food systems now. Um, you know, hopefully we're going to see more and more of that because you have more people with now raising food on their farm and going, why can't I make salsa? Yeah. Yeah. Why can't I make muffins? Yeah. You know, and, and so it's, it's easier to get more of this done because there's more ownership and vested interest. And so I'm, I'm hopeful we'll see gains at the state level. And at the federal level, it's going to be a shit show of stupidity. Especially I think it's going they... to be a, such a disaster that it'll be an opportunity, right? Like that they're going to try to do so much, they're not going to be able to do what they want. <laughs> yeah. Well, again, especially if they if they create an office of supply or whatever. Yeah. yeah. You know, because that's like straight out of flipping Soviet Russia and other fascist communist regimes yeah um that you you might finally see a few states find their backbone and find their balls yeah and really send some of the federal regulatory system packing you know um if there is a place for states to stand under the ninth and tenth it's it's food it's a it's it's a it's a good place to stand and push back from it's a place with a lot of opportunity to stand and push back from, um, big time. And I just want to drive home something for people. You, you said, you know, stimulus. Now we've had six trillion in stimulus since this started. That's about a year, because we we're right at the anniversary of 15 days to flatten the curve. Remember that, six trillion dollars in in 2002, which most people listening to this probably remember. That's not that long ago. The entire national debt was 6.2 trillion dollars. <laughs> we've put and we don't have a penny of the stimulus money in hand it's a hundred percent added to the debt we put more stimulus in in a year than we had the entire national debt 
in 2002. I, that is that is incredibly alarming to me. And I would say even in 2010, that represents about half the national debt in 2010. That's only 11 years ago. And that's just in, that's just in printed money, just in stimulus. That's not all the other shit they printed money for. Because we have about a, a we have a running total of about one to three trillion dollars per annuum in new debt for everything they do anyway. And then you just add six trillion to that. Like, what could go wrong? This, it'll be fine. It'll be okay. Don't worry about it. You know, <laughs> don't buy Bitcoin. That's the dumbest thing you could do right now. Buy Bitcoin and gold. Oh, what kind of crazy conspiracy theorist are you? Grow your own food. You're a nut. Butcher your own cow. Why would you do that? Get the cows to come from the store. They're already wrapped up. I mean, like, yeah, I think you're right on what we're going to see. But I, I think it's like a mixed blessing. Like, their problems give us the opportunity to provide, not propose, but provide solutions. Oh, exactly. Yep. And, and you know, that's, again, that's why I like Rogue, because especially, you know, on the conservative side, conservative commentators and politicians are all problems and no solutions. And Joel and I just got so sick and tired of hearing people wide or, or their solutions are more government. They're like, you know, we have this problem with too much government and too much regulation. And our solution, Jack, is more government and more regulation. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. Joel and I are like, no, like, like the, you know, I think it was Einstein or someone who said you cannot fix a problem with the same thinking that created the problem. And, and, you know, we're like, no, we really want solutions. We want to highlight to people that there are options and there are people who are creating and innovating and embracing options. And we want to get more people into, you know, to using their resources and using their energy on that side of the equation. Because we all know there's problems and as you've been preaching, I know, for the last year on the show, like, these are big problems you really should take seriously. Like, this is just an absolute shit show of catastrophe that may possibly sweep across America in the coming decade. Absolutely, man. So if people want to come to the conference or learn more about you, uh, what are the websites they can check out for that? So Rogue Food Conference is the website for Rogue. Um, and then my personal website is johnwmoody.com. All right, man. Well, I, I really had a great time with you today, John, and I appreciate you being with us. It is good to get caught up. It's been a while since we've got to talk. so. But hopefully we'll get to do it sometime again. And I, I've had a ton of people in Texas request we do Rogue down there next year. Um, so I might be reaching out to you just to – to oh, talk with you about that if we want to do one in Texas. I'm all uh, for it. I'm all for it. So sweet. Well, you have a great day, friend. Take care, bro. It was a great interview. Uh, really good discussion is what it was. I, I love interviews that are more discussions than anything else, uh, and that's certainly what that was. I could probably have sat down and talked to him for about another hour on this note. Um, remember, if you like this work that we do here and you want to support us, one easy way to do that is just do your online shopping at tspaz.com. You're going to buy something online. Before you do, go to tspaz.com. Start there. No matter what you buy, you help us out. Today's item of the day, we're talking about food production. And I'm looking out my window, and it's green. It's amazing to me that two weeks ago it was like five inches of snow and below zero, literally below zero. 
and not Celsius either. Not 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 weak below zero. Serious below zero. Fahrenheit below zero. And it's just gorgeous green everywhere now. It is time. And one of the things we need to think about when it comes to growing our own food and providing for our animals, if we're growing animals, is the ability to get water from one place to another. We're really lucky in our modern age. We have a thing called a hose. There was a time when people didn't have hoses. There's places in the world today where people still don't have hoses to be able to move water around. I got to go to a well with a bucket. The problem is most hoses suck. I have found what I believe is the best hose for the money on the market. I'm not saying there's not any better hoses, but this is like a, a, a hose that will last a long time. It doesn't kink on you. It's called the Gilmore G I L M O U R Pro. I brought it around today because it's on sale for 35 bucks for the for the uh, the 50 foot uh, version of it, which is 26% off. I use the hose all the time. Is my example of always be frugal, never be cheap. I don't go out and buy the most expensive hose I can get. I buy the best hose for the money that I can find. And the way I reason this is, I can go down to like Tractor Supply and buy a hose called a Never Kink. I, I've changed the name of Never Kink to Ever Kink because all it ever does is kink for like 20 bucks. It sucks. I'll be miserable with it. And within about two years, it'll crack and start to have problems and I'll have to replace it. Or I can buy a Gilmore for $35. It'll do a great job for me day in, day out. I'll love having it. And I'll have it for years and years and years. And even if like the end gets bad or something, I'll just cut the end off and put a new end on it. The choice is yours. And it costs less for the lifetime. And you get a better experience with the Gilmore. So you want to, you want to get one of these if, you, if you're in need of a new hose. If you have the hoses you, ha you need and you're good and you're happy, it's fine. But if you need a new one, this is what I would recommend. Now, I have heard from some people that say, well, you know, I bought one of these. And he's right. It's a better hose than most of them. It still kinks. I still have some problems with it. This has a lot to do with what I call hose break-in. And it's one of those things we should teach people and we don't. You get a hose 50-foot, or they make these in 75 and 100-foot. Now, if you got a 100-foot of rubber hose that's been rolled up and sitting in a warehouse in varying temperatures for God knows how long, and it's kind of stiff, it's not worked in yet, and you just throw it on the ground and start pulling it out, I don't care how good it is, you're going to have issues. This is your break-in procedure for a new hose. Go ahead, hook up the, 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 uh, the terminal end for the, for the you know, male, female to the male to your hose bib. Take the hose and unroll it walking while you're unrolling it, and unroll it all the way out in a straight line. If where you are, you don't have enough room to roll all the way out in a straight line, go as far as you can, one big loop, turn around and come back, and lay the hose out as straight as possible. If it's a little wonky, don't worry about it. Just lay it out as straight as possible. Go turn the water on and run water through it for about a minute especially if it's cold out. This is going to bring the temperature of the hose up to relatively the temperature of the water. You'll notice that if it's cold out, this is going to make the hose a little bit more soft and supple. Turn the water off. Then get any kind of a hose nozzle, any kind of end to the hose where you can put that on there, turn the hose on, and the water will not run. So the hose is full and pressurized. When you do this, go ahead, open the nozzle, run a little water. That way you have no air and you have full of water. Shut it off. Leave it sit. For several hours, tensioned up like that, as straight as possible, in the sun. And this will remove that memory that it's holding of those loops. And then when you wind it up, if you don't have like a hose minder or something like that you're putting it on, make big loops. What I do, I grab the hose and I do that half twist thing so you get a loop, and I walk. And I make my loops where they are about, I would say, four foot across. Right, four, four foot across. And uh, then you just leave the top being the end that you're going to spray things with. 
And when you need it, you'll grab that and just walk away with it. You'll never have a problem again. Any hose will do better if you take that approach. If you do that with a Gilmore, you'll, I'm going to tell you right now, you're going to not buy any other hoses ever again. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up with our song of the day today. Uh, we're in Moody Blues Week. And I want to let you know right here at the end, tomorrow there's going to be a rewind. Friday there's going to be an expert council show like normal. And then next week will be all rewinds as we're doing the workshop, okay? Uh, and I should announce, I do have a few seats. I've had some people had to counsel, cancel due to life events. I have a few seats available. If you'd like to come to the workshop next week, I know it's last minute, but if you'd like to come, TSPC workshop in the subject line, email me at jackofthesurvivalpodcast.com, and uh, we can get you worked in. There's, there's only a few, but there are a few. All right. Um, anyway, our song of the day today is by the Moody Blues. Like I said, it's Moody Blues Week, and it's called 22,000 Days. Now, that number's not exactly accurate anymore, but at the time the song was written, if you went to the CDC Center for Disease Statistics and Death of Age, the average human life, you know, men and women canceled out against each other, was about 22,000 days. That's what the song's about. It's, and, and, and the fact that the number is bigger now doesn't change the point of the song. This song really is about making the most of your dash, understanding how precious the time that we have is and why we need to be doing something meaningful with it. And that's a lot of what John and I were talking about today, making sure that there's freedom of choice and availability of food here for your children and your grandchildren after you're gone, right? Taking responsibility for yourself and for that of your children That's making the most of those 22,000 or 30,000, whatever number of days it is now. That's making the most of your dash. With that, has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast.